All right. Hey, by the way, uh, if you're in middle school, feel free to go to the back. You can find Jocelyn and head your way back to the middle school. You guys can head out always during the meet and greet. Um, hey, everyone. Welcome to The Exchange. My name is Josiah. So glad you guys are with us. Um, super excited for today and for all that's in store for today. Before we get going, before we do anything, um, I do want to acknowledge that I, I believe today is actually the official, today is officially Veterans Day, and then tomorrow it's observed. And so I want to do two things. Um, I want to make you feel really uncomfortable. I want to do two things. Uh, <laughs> if you are a veteran, we just want to say thank you. Can we just say thank you to all the veterans in this room right now? Can we just say thank you for serving? Because I know you're here. Um, and I want to do something even more uncomfortable. If you are a veteran, uh, we do just want to pray over you and just say thank you. So I'm going to ask that wherever you are, if you would stand, and if you're near someone who's standing, uh, man or woman, just lay your hands on them appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, man? We just want to say thank you. Thank you for your service. And uh, I just want to pray over you guys. So if you're near a veteran who's standing, lay your hands on their shoulder, their back appropriately. We just want to pray over them, pray over their families and their future families. <laughs> So let's pray. Father, I'm just, um, I'm so humbled by the men and women in this room who, who Jesus have shown us what it looks like to sacrifice, to sacrifice it in ways probably we don't fully understand. Lord, thank you. Just thank you for their service to this country, God, to you, how we need more men and women who believe in you, Jesus, how we need more men and women who love you, just in the armed forces and we just thank you for those who are standing right now. Bless them, God. Fill them with your spirit. Let them just continue. We know that they've already led in so many ways. Let them continue to lead their families, their homes. God, lead at their jobs. Jesus, just bless their, their families, their kids, Lord, the sacrifices that their spouses have made. Jesus, we just thank you again. We look to you, God. This just reminds us, their sacrifice and their service reminds us of your sacrifice and your service. And so we just thank you, God. We thank you for everything you've done. We just want to praise you now and thank you for them in your wonderful name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Again, you can give it up for them. Woo! Hey, we are in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15, and we're actually going to get into 16 and finish the Gospel of Mark today. So let's do this. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. So Mark chapter 15, raise your hand. Don't be shy. We'll get you a Bible so you can follow along. So, uh, as I mentioned this, you guys know this, um, we started the Gospel of Mark in January on our church's opening launch day. And in these 16 chapters, we spent over 40 sermons. And I'm kind of sad to say goodbye um, to the Gospel of Mark, but it's not really goodbye. Uh, but here, here's what I've enjoyed so much about this. Um, we wanted to start off our church's time together as a young church coming together, and we want to be centered and built on the person of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he claimed. That's why we started in this gospel. Um, it's been said that the gospel, the story of Jesus, is not the starting point, it's the only point. We never graduate from the gospel. So it's not like, oh, we went through the gospels, and, and we know it, and now we move on to bigger and better things. Uh, I love how one author wrote it. He said, the gospel is not the diving board, it's the whole swimming pool. I mean, like, we don't just start off with the gospel of Jesus and, like, I moved on from it, but we swim in the gospel. We enjoy everything about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. And so I don't want us to, like, finish Mark and be like, okay, now we're going to move on to greater things. We can't. We, we're, we're looking still. We're always going to go back to the person and the work of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And so we are finishing the gospel today, but we really never do leave it. And so um, I actually, we want to do something that's a little different because we haven't really had a chance to do this, but I don't want to just like spend a year in this book and then like move on and next week we do begin a new series. So we're asking that you guys do this actually. If, if you have social media and you'd like to do this, uh, we'd ask that you would actually just maybe post your takeaway. 
um, we spent a year in this book. And so what was like your main thing you, you got from this book? And so we have this, if you want to post something about the Gospel of Mark and do hashtag my Mark takeaway, um, just to even just reflect on this. If you have a journal, we gave out journals in the beginning of the year. Uh, please read through that and be like, what is my takeaway? And I have mine, and I'll share it later. Uh, but if you would go back, look at your notes, we would love for you just to like, think through it, just so we don't move on to a new topic and, and almost forget all that God has shown us in this gospel. So we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And I mentioned this as well. Um, next week, we are beginning a series on the Holy Spirit. It's called just Receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to spend this series up until Christmas. And I'm excited to talk about now, like, what's next? So Jesus died, he rose again. And here we are 2,000 years later. What does it look like to follow Jesus? How do we follow Jesus? How do we, how do we walk just daily with Jesus? And so we're going to look at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit for several weeks up until Christmas time. Looking so forward to this. So that begins next week. Just want you to be aware of that. So Mark chapter 15. Again, if you want to just look there, let me review really quick so you know where we're at. Last week, we specifically look at just the cross and everything around the cross. So we looked at how Jesus was beaten and mocked. He was just mocked in just detailed ways. How Jesus was not just only mocked, but he was abandoned on the cross from God. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sin of the world was placed on Jesus. And for a moment, for a period of time, there was this disconnect that he's always had with the Father. And then we saw that on the cross, the veil was torn. How the veil that kept the holy place from the holy of holies was torn, it says from top to bottom, as if God was saying, come on in, you have access to me. Come boldly to my throne of grace. Just as Jesus' flesh was torn apart on the cross, the veil was torn apart. And so we looked at that, and this, the first person we see after the veil being torn, after the crossing, is this pagan soldier who confesses out loud, truly this man was the son of God. And it's almost as if he like entered in behind the veil to say, this guy is everything he said he was. And so that's where we ended. We looked at the cross and the cross scene, and we're going to look at now specifically his burial and his resurrection. And if you guys were with us last week, and maybe you remember this, our first sermon ever in the Gospel of Mark was just called The Greatest Story Ever Told. Last week was The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Cross. This week is The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Resurrection. And, and this really is the center point of Christianity. And we have to understand that the, the cross is, in a sense, incomplete without the resurrection, obviously. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, this is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3, Paul says, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That Jesus died for our sin according to the word of God, but he also rose again according to the word of God. So this is the greatest story ever told, the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to read in verse 42, and then we're going to stop in verse 8. I'll talk for a little bit, and then we'll keep reading. All right, uh, Mark chapter 16 Mark chapter 15, verse 42. Let's read. So it says, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And so Pilate, summoning the centurion, he asked if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, he, bought the, he bought the fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint Jesus. Very early in the morning, on the first of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, 
And they said among themselves, who will roll, roll the stone away from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he, this angel, said to him, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's stop there really quick. We're going to read verse 9 in just a second. Um, I wanted to stop here because maybe you have a little footnote. I'm not sure what translation you have, what Bible you're using. Maybe you see something. Uh, but here's what's believed. It says maybe in your footnote, uh, verse 9 through 20, or maybe not in the original manuscripts, that they're not found in the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Vaticanus, the earliest manuscripts we have of the Bible. And you're like, what is this? Maybe this freaks you out a little bit. You're like, I, what is this footnote? I've never seen this. Um, I do want to look at this. This is important. I have a little pamphlet here because I figured it might freak some of you out. It's called How We Got the Bible. Uh, we bought a few of these. They're in the back for like five bucks. You can grab one in case you're like wondering, how did we get the Bible? What is this? How was this formed? Uh, we do not see verse 9 through 20 in the earliest manuscripts we have. Why is it included? Because if we look at the manuscripts as a whole, we will see verse 9 through 20, but they're not in the earliest ones. So is it supposed to be? There's not supposed to be there. Let me say in verse 9 through 20, there's nothing biblically inaccurate. There's nothing said here that Matthew or Luke does not confirm. So let me just start off with that. They might not be in the earliest manuscripts. Some of our church fathers, like Jerome and Eusebius, they don't actually even mention verse 9 through 20. That's not in their writings. So it's believed that this is probably not in the original manuscripts, uh, but it does not mean that's not biblical. I wanted to share that with you because I think it's important for us to actually, one, be honest with ourselves and know what does the Bible teach and how did we get it formed and does our Bible leave out certain books at the, the pocket? What is that? So we got this again, like I said. If you are interested, grab one in the back. I hope it actually spurs more questions within you. This is not a bad thing. It's not something to be afraid of. This is a good thing. I hope that Christians do study this and want to know how was the Bible formed. Uh, one author that I highly respect is named Daniel Aiken. He said this. Let me just read it to you. He said, and thus, Mark's gospel comes to an end, and an abrupt one at that. Verses 9 through 20 are not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, though there is nothing in them inconsistent with the scriptures. Mark's sudden ending was what he wanted. It makes clear that the disciples of Jesus were stunned by all of this. They did not expect the resurrection, which we'll talk about as evidence for the resurrection. Um, but I do want you guys to kind of just be aware of this, and I hope you have questions, and I hope you look into this more. We're going to read verse 9 through 20, and we're going to look at it as, as simply this. The story continues. After Jesus died and rose again, the gospel starts out by going with a couple people, then the disciples, then the multitudes, and here we are today. So let's read verse 9 through 20, and then we're going to pray, and we'll focus more on the resurrection. Verse 9, it says, Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and, and he had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to, to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Remember the road to Emmaus story? And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. 
And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And we're going to talk more about the person of the Holy Spirit as we get into our Holy Spirit series next week and his work and that, and that specifically. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll look at this more in depth. Father, we just, um, we do thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And God would be so lost without it. And Jesus, we, we, I think many of us here maybe have read about your resurrection. We've heard about it. Many here believe it. We surrender ourselves to it. And Lord, many here maybe don't believe it yet. And this is still a struggle for them in their worldview. And God, I just ask that you would show us, God, that you who spoke the world into existence also have power over life and death. And that, God, we just see Jesus for who he is, that he is risen, that he conquered sin and hell and death, and yes, that he is sitting at your right hand. And so, Father, we ask that you'd speak, that we would just be humbled by the truth of the resurrection and that, Jesus, we would walk with the power of the resurrection, that you who rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. So we thank you. We just ask that you'd be here in your wonderful name. Amen. Last Sunday night, I was putting my son, Micah, to bed. He's three years old. And as I was putting him to bed, you know, we kind of have a routine. Parents, you know what your routine is. Like, we read him stories. We, you know, we kind of do the whole thing. But for some reason this night, I'm like, let me just kind of do this a little differently. And so he's quiet sometimes before bed and will, like, be more, like, in tune. I can talk to him better. So I just said, Micah, I said, is, and this is not normal. I said, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything I can teach you? And that's like a scary question because I was like, I thought I was going to say, Candy, bring it up right now. So I was like, is there anything I can do for you? And he says, yeah. And he says this. He says, I quote, he goes, I don't understand death. Why do we die? It doesn't make any sense to me. And you're like, what are you teaching your three-year-old? <laughs> this is scary. And he really said this. So as he said this, I go, Micah, that's a great question. Death doesn't make any sense. I'm like, why do we die? And I, I said to him, I said, listen, Jesus beat up death. This is what I, how I try to put it to a three-year-old. I go, Jesus beat up death. He won. Jesus won. He goes, I want to win. And I go, yes, this is the good news. Jesus's victory is your victory. Because Jesus beat up death, you also beat up death through Jesus. And he's like, lost at that point. And then we, we just talked about the depravity of man and all the theological implications. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but he was, and he was, and he kept on asking though. He goes, I don't understand death. Why do we die? And he's just haunted by this, and he's been kind of going through that phase, and maybe if you're a parent, you remember walking through that phase, or maybe they've had that phase, maybe they haven't yet. And I really do appreciate that he's thinking about this. He was actually, the, I think the first time it came to him was when he's in the car singing a worship song with my wife, and it said, Jesus died. He goes, I don't want Jesus to die. My wife's like, no, no, he already died, but he's risen. He's like, what? Like, you know, but like, we're just trying to explain to him this idea of death, and, it, and, it, and for him, it's like, I don't get this. Death interrupts life. He's like, I don't want mommy to die. I don't want daddy to die. And the good news is this, and I tried telling him this, and you're like, you're this crazy as a dad trying to explain this to a three-year-old. I know. I said, Micah, Jesus said, and I said, quote John 11, I go, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live. And then Jesus said, do you believe this? And I didn't get a chance, but do you believe this? But I was just like, Micah, Jesus won. Jesus conquered death. And really, this is like the only hope we have when it comes to death. I mean, if you think about the idea of death and what is death and wh why does death happen? 
And was death a part of God's original plan? I mean, why does, why does death even happen to begin with? And death seems to be something that haunts everyone, Christian, non-Christian. In the back of everyone's mind, they know, I will breathe my last one day, and what, what is next? And as Christians, we have this hope. We have a hope that does not fail. We have a hope that tells us Jesus faced death, that Jesus took away the sting of death, that death, I love how one person put it, death, Jesus made death a gardener. Jesus made death a gardener. All death can do now is plant you in the ground and you spring up new life. And this idea of death haunts so many of us and haunts so many people. And, and how do we face death? How do we face this fear of death? And here, here's what the Bible says. We, we know this. We've quoted this. We've said this. Maybe you've heard this before. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul put it this way. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Let me say this. The cross has meaning only because of the resurrection. We can talk about the cross all day long. We'll say Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus is the substitute for mankind. But in reality, those are just meaningless, empty words if Jesus did not rise. Jesus rising from the grave gives validity to the cross. It gives validity to the fact that he is our substitute. That's how we know. The resurrection, Paul says, if it did not happen, if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. And so this is the hope for our souls that Jesus rose again from the grave and he conquered death. So let me put it another way to you. How do we know payment went through? Like how do we know when Jesus said, I paid for the sins of the world? How do we know that's true and how do we know that's accepted? You know, how do you know payment goes through in life? You receive a receipt. You know, I don't know if you like Costco. I love Costco. I'm a Costco-ite. Me and every Canadian are. Um, but I love Costco. When I, when I first moved here uh, from California, we went into Costco, this giant department store. It felt like home to me because, again, when i coming from Southern California here, I'm like, oh, no, not a lot of things look alike. But I go to Costco, and it's laid out the same way. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm home. So I love Costco. I have a you know, deep love for Costco. Costco does something every time you buy something and you're checking out and you're walking to the store. What do they do? They take your receipt right? They want to know, you're not just stealing their stuff, but they want to know how do we know purchase, how do we know that you, it's paid in full? How do we know that you made this purchase? They look at your receipt and they take a little highlighter and they check it off with the highlighter, right? The little famous highlighter at Costco. And this is the idea. Every time you go to Costco, now I want you to think of the resurrection. The Costco, this idea, the idea of the receipt, the idea of walking to stores that payments has been made and it's been accepted. We know our payment's been accepted because of the receipt. We know that our sins were paid for because of the receipt of the resurrection. A way for us to even understand this is Jesus on the cross said what? It is finished. He literally said, te telestai, or literally meaning paid in full. It's paid in full. The sins of the world have been paid in full. But again, how do we know? How do we know he's not just saying things on the cross? How do we know this is real? The idea is because of the resurrection. The resurrection gives validity to everything Jesus said and has done for you and I. Because Jesus is risen, we know it's paid in full. Because we have the receipt. The receipt is the resurrection. The receipt is us saying, look at Jesus is risen. What he said is so true. So again, if someone says to you and I, hey, I want to tell you, I am the creator of all things. I'm the creator of maker of all of life. That conversation is going to end really quick. We're like, all right, peace out. See ya. Like we're not going to entertain that. But what gives validity to Jesus' words is the fact that he died and rose again. I mean, when you think about the resurrection and you think about what happened at that point in time with the disciples and how it just absolutely changed the world as we know it, because why? They saw the risen Jesus. And so I, do, I do want to look at the resurrection. I, I think Mark, 
probably even more than other gospels, is actually very like apologetic, meaning Mark kind of presents the case for the resurrection. If you notice, Mark is constantly giving people's names and where they're from, and he's, he's saying, look, check it out. Go back to them themselves. So I want to look at the resurrection, because what, what does the resurrection do? Like, what does it do to you and I? To Christians, to non-Christians, what does it do? And here's how we're going to walk through this. I want you to see this today. Listen, the resurrection, it challenges our worldview. The resurrection challenges everyone's worldview. Uh, the resurrection changes our hearts, and the resurrection commissions our feet. And this is what we're going to see in the book of Mark. This is what we've seen in all of the Gospels. The resurrection challenges everyone's r- worldview. The resurrection changes the heart of man, and the resurrection sends us. It commissions our feet. It sends us out. And so let's look at the first thought. All right. The resurrection, it challenges our worldview. Okay. Whether or not it's the year 2018 or it's 33 AD, whatever time frame you lived in, the resurrection is difficult for anyone to understand. When you hear about someone coming back from the grave, that they were dead for three days and, and walked out of the grave, that, that's challenging for all of us. We can't assume that it's easy for them to believe and it's difficult for us to believe. We can't assume that. And so it challenges everyone's worldview. And I want you to look at, in verse 42 through 47, here's what Mark's trying to say. Mark's saying the Marys were at the cross— we know that the, the pagan soldier who says, this is the son of God. We know this guy named Joseph of Arimathea shows up and says, give me the body. Mark is trying to show us very clearly Jesus is dead. I want you to like, if you look at that and reread that, like Pilate's in shock. He's like, wait, he's dead already? He's like, yeah. He asked the centurion. He's like, yeah, I pierced the side. Blood and water came out. The idea of blood and water shows that his heart is ruptured. This, this pocket of water around the heart is ruptured. Jesus is really dead. He's really dead. Mark's trying to make the case that Jesus is really dead. He finds out from people. He finds out from the soldiers. He goes, okay. Joseph, you can have his body. Now, normally what would happen if someone was crucified on the cross, uh, they'd actually just be kind of fed to the dogs. Birds would just pick at them. They'd be thrown into this valley of, called the Valley of Hinnom. It's like a fire that just continually burns. Is their garbage dump, basically. Most of the time, the bodies would be taken down just thrown in the garbage dump. Thankfully, Joseph of Arimathea says, hey, can I, I want this body. And fulfilling, if, just so you know, Joseph doing this fulfills Isaiah 53, that he would be buried with the rich. So Joseph comes and says, I want the body of Jesus. And he's like, okay. Now, by the way, Joseph of Arimathea, who is this guy? Really quick. Uh, he's, a, he's a council member, meaning he's part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 70 religious rulers that basically kind of ran Jerusalem in a sense. I mean, this guy is risking his reputation. We know that it says in actually Luke 23, uh, verse 51, it says that Joseph had not consented to their decision indeed. So meaning this, Joseph did not agree to Jesus being, to Jesus being crucified. He was the one that spoke up according to Luke. So Joseph goes kind of his body, and it says in Mark's gospel, he took courage. He, he knew by asking for the body of Jesus, because it might hurt his reputation. And so Mark is showing us, listen, Jesus is really dead. There's no question. It's confirmed in many circumstances. People were there. He is really dead. Just to, you know, the, the, he knew there'd be skeptics saying, did he really die? Yes, he really died. Now, Mark says in, in verse 1 and 2, let's keep reading. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. We'll read it. It says, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Uh, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. All right, here's the idea. Mary's, the Mary's, they came to the tomb. Did they expect Jesus to be alive? Look at verse 1 and 2, where they're like, and then they expected Jesus to be there. No. They came bringing spices. What does that mean? They expected Jesus to be dead. I want you to understand this. No one, for some reason, no one had the mindset that it's the third day Jesus must be alive. And that is mind-blowing to me. 
Three times in Mark's gospel, at least three times, Jesus goes, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to die on a cross and raise again in three days. And they're like, what is he talking about? Like for them, they couldn't understand this idea that Jesus would literally die and literally rise again. And the women go to the tomb with spices because, again, the body is more to, to help with the odor. And the, uh, So they're going there just really to, to just kind of help and bring spices and help with the odor and pay the respects to Jesus in a way. And, and they did not expect him to be alive. They lived, they lived as if Jesus was dead. That's how they were living then. They lived as if, as if Jesus was dead. And here's the thing. We still live this way, myself included. Many of us do. Many Christians still li- live as if Jesus is dead. Many Christians know, we know his word. They knew his word. We know Jesus is risen, but do we live in that way? Do we live as though Jesus has risen? Do we live as though Jesus conquered sin and hell and death? Do we live as if we have power and victory over sin through Christ? I mean, do we live with this boldness and power of the Spirit? You see, they knew, they knew Jesus' word, but no one expected him to be alive. And before I give them a hard time, I say, that's me. Because I know your word so often, Jesus, but I don't expect it to be true. I know your word, but I don't walk or live as if it is true. And so they go, and they're bringing their spices, and again, Mark's trying to point out, look at, no one expected him to be alive. Like, Mark's trying to show us that there wasn't this mindset. Nobody's like, oh my gosh, guys, it's the third day. Jesus must be risen. Let's go check. Like, there wasn't that mindset. And that only, honestly, Mark's pointing out, that only adds, not my opinion, that only adds validity, validity to the resurrection. If you and I were to make up this story and say, let's just say Jesus rose again, we'd probably paint us or portray us in a way that was like, and we were ready for the resurrection. And when Jesus burst out of the tomb, we were there like, we're ready for you, Jesus. Like, we'd probably portray it not like hiding, not cowards, not expecting it. Just how, actually, it's, it's women who show up with the first one on the scene. And, and this, we wouldn't have written it this way if this was something we were to make up and point out. And so I, I do want to say this. There were dozens, listen, there were dozens of messianic claims in Jesus' time. By the way, there are a lot of people who claim to be the Messiah. And you can read about different people. There is uh, Jesus Barabbas. You can read all these different people throughout history that claim to be the Messiah, right? Around Jesus' era and time. But can I tell you something? Every time that leader died, that movement ended. But what's so unique about Christianity is when Jesus died, the movement didn't end. It actually seemed to explode it. See, what, what happens with some people claiming to be the Messiah? Follow me, follow me. They die. That movement just kind of dwindles out. But for some reason, the movement of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he dies, and then just several days later, this movement explodes to 25,000 people getting saved within months. What is that? Within two decades, we see 25 million people being saved following Jesus. What is that? Why didn't this movement come to an end like the rest? You know, there's this mindset uh, that people have. They said, this was written years later. We all know Mark's gospel can't be real. It was written years later. That's kind of the mindset. But if that's the case, Mark is giving people's names and locations. Hey, talk to Joseph of Arimathea. Mark is constantly pointing out people's names and locations. Why? You know, again, legend wasn't written this way. Legend would be afraid to give people's names and locations. We talked about this last week with Alexander and Rufus. Simon, remember Simon who carried the cross? And he goes, hey, remember his kids, Alexander and Rufus? Mark and the gospel writers wouldn't give names and locations of these people if it wasn't for them still being living, living and this being written in their lifetime. You know, there's this mindset, it's funny, C.S. Lewis, who's just a great theologian, who, who's a great apologetic thinker, he, he writes about something called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, like what is that? Here's what that is. That is us today, modern people, we say, oh, people back then would believe anything, but us sophisticated people, <laughs> well, we think about things a little bit differently, right? And there's this, almost this mindset that people back then were foolish, but we've graduated from all of that. He, here's his point, his point is this, um, for the Greeks to believe in a bodily resurrection was way outside their zone. 
Greeks would never believe in a physical bodily resurrection. Even Jews who believed in a physical bodily resurrection, they believed that one day where everyone rose again, not one man in the middle of history. This was challenging for anyone to believe. We can't assume that, oh, this is, this is hard for us to believe, but it's easy for them to believe. This was just as hard for people to believe 2,000 years ago as it is today. This was just as difficult for them to understand that there was a man who died and rose again. But what would make them, what would make them change that? What would make Jews believe that someone physically rose again? Someone physically rose again. What would make Greeks believe, these pagan Greeks who don't believe in a bodily resurrection, what would make them believe that only if it happened? See, it's only the resurrection itself that can change someone's worldview so dramatically. That is, so, that is the case that's happening here. So here's the idea. Because in reality, when you talk about the resurrection, I get it. They're skeptics. My heart has been skeptical. I've had a big challenge myself with scripture and outside sources. And is there evidence for this? What does this look like? There's really three approaches to the resurrection. So if you're, you're taking notes, and you can simplify it this way. Three approaches to the resurrection. Number one, Jesus' resurrection is false. It's a great hoax. That's one option, people say. The resurrection is false. Others say Jesus' resurrection is fiction. It's just ancient mythology. The other view is that Jesus' resurrection is fact. It's the supreme event of history. Now let's talk about this briefly. Because people say, hey, look, it's false. It's a great hoax. The disciples made it up. I mean, this is something they connived and pl- plotted and planned, and they just made this up. Again, others that say it's not just false, but it's fiction. It just kind of developed over time and grew over time, and people began to believe and tell these stories that this guy died and rose again. Then they eventually said he's God, and it just kind of began to grow into this way. Here's the problem, and here's what I'm going to share with you. Um, we do have different authors, Christian and non-Christian, throughout history who wrote about Jesus. You have people, obviously, like Josephus or Pliny the Younger. You have different people throughout church history that wrote about Jesus' resur- death and resurrection, some from a believer's standpoint, some not from a believer's standpoint. And here's what they all agree upon. Because there's many things, listen, there's many things surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus that if you believe it's fiction, if you believe it's false, you have to answer certain questions. So I'm going to show these to you. Don't try to write them down. Just hear them. You can take a picture if you want. But here are certain historical facts around the death and resurrection of Jesus. These are not really argued amongst people. These are not, I'm not trying to give an argument for the resurrection right now. I'm just trying to show you the facts around the death and resurrection. Here's the first one. Jesus died on a Roman cross by crucifixion. People agree upon that. All right. Most secular historians will go, yeah, yeah, there's a guy named Jesus and he died on a Roman cross. Jesus was buried in a tomb, not far from the crucifixion site. It's not really argued with. Jesus' death threw the disciples into a state of despair and despondency, believing that their Lord was now dead. Number four, Jesus' tomb was discovered to be empty shortly after his burial. Okay. Like, yeah, it says that. But what happens? How do you explain that? Verse five, the disciples had real and genuine experiences that convinced them beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had risen from the dead and that he was alive. What changed? Verse six, or number six, uh, the, these experiences with the risen Jesus radically transformed the disciples into bold witnesses of his resurrection from the dead. A witness that led to martyrdom for many of them. How do you explain that? Number seven, the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was the heart of the gospel from the beginning of the church's existence. It's been there from the very beginning. did not come years later. Number eight, the gospel was preached in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus had been crucified and buried. There, if he didn't rise, you feel like the very city itself would produce something to show, look at he's really dead. Uh, number nine, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection was foundational in the birth of the Christian church. Number 10, Sunday, not the Sabbath, became the day of worship for the church in celebration of the Lord's resurrection on that day. What changed from going from worshiping on Saturday to Sunday? Number 11, James, Jesus' half-brother and an unbeliever, was converted following an appearance of his resurrected brother. 
Number 12, Saul, a persecutor of Christians, was converted to Christianity following an appearance of the risen Christ. Here are certain things that we've studied throughout history. People look at Paul and go, this guy, Paul, changed history. Whether or not you're a Christian, they go, he changed history. The gospel spread east, it also spread west through Paul. It changes the Western world, the modern world as we know it. How do we explain these certain things without the resurrection? Now, I know that some of these are kind of arguments, and I'm going to give you some similar evidences. So here's what I'm trying to do. And please don't miss this. I don't want, just, I don't want this just to be information. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 15, I would encourage you, please read it. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, the author, Paul, he's actually trying to give you apologetic reasons that Christ is risen. He's saying, look at these facts. Look at these eyewitness accounts of people seeing the resurrected Jesus. You speak to them. You talk to them. That's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to say, if you struggle with the resurrection, I do want to present certain arguments or evidences for the resurrection. If you're a Christian, take notes. Write these down. Be aware of these. If you're not a Christian, please consider these things. When you say it's impossible the resurrection could happen, it's impossible. That's not, we can't really even observe that scientifically. That's not a statement we really can prove. It is possible the resurrection happened. So what are the evidences for the resurrection? So I'm going to give you a few, and please bear with me, all right? Because this is so important, and this is so necessary. Because I can't tell you, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, amen? So let's talk through those. You ready? All right, here's the first one. You're not, but it's okay. Number one, uh, here's some evidences. The birth of the disciples' faith and the radical change in their lives. And we kind of read this. But what made them go from cowards, hiding, Peter cursing and swearing, I don't know him, to being these bold proclaimers of the gospel where we see in the book of Acts they're being beaten over and over again, and they're rejoicing about their beating. They're like, yes, God, thank you that I'm able to be beaten. I'm worthy. I'm kind of worthy of the gospel. Like, what is that? What, what changed? other than maybe they saw something. Uh, number two, the inability of the Jewish leaders and the Romans to disprove the message of the empty tomb. The idea is this. All they had to do was say, here's the dead body of Jesus. Look at, I mean, here's the dead body. That's all they had to do is just produce the dead body. We don't see that happening in history. Uh, three, the fact that women saw the empty tomb first. You know, this to me is a great evidence for Christianity. Let me point this out. Um, I want to share with you a second century sexism quote. Just, I don't want to offend you, but this is, the, this is a guy who quote, says something about women, and it's actually an argument for the resurrection. Listen to this. A guy named Celsus, second century Greek historian, he says this. Christianity can't be true. Why? Because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. Understand this. Please hear this. I'm not, I'm, this is not a good quote, by the way. I'm not like, yeah, this is good. This is not a good quote. This is a, actually evidence for the resurrection. Here, here's, this is what he appealed to people back then. He'd say, hey, we all know that women can't be, uh, they can't give their testimony in court. We all know that women weren't reliable eyewitnesses. This actually, this quote here actually stumbled people into going, maybe the resurrection didn't happen. Yeah, maybe the women just hysterical and they, they thought they saw Jesus. This actually was an argument for them against the resurrection. For us and for me, it's an argument for the resurrection. You know, because why would you write this knowing that culture? Why would you make this up? Why would you create this hoax if that's how you knew people viewed women and viewed their testimony? Unless women really did see Jesus first. Unless that's what happened. Unless God decided to say, I want to make women the first eyewitness account of my son's resurrection. Celsus and other writers said, no, no, we can't believe Christians because we all know women saw him first and we all know we can't believe that. And so that was an argument against it. This is an argument to me for it, which I'm so thankful for. Number four, uh, just post-resurrection appearances. I mean, just in the, in the Bible itself, there's at least 13 different times Jesus meets with individuals or crowds or groups of people. At one point in time, appearing at over 500 people. We give the names of cities and the people that who, who he met with to say, you, che- you check it out. You talk to them themselves. Move, keep moving. Uh, the unexpected nature of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Again, no one expected this. 
It wasn't like, again, if we're to write the story or make up the story, we would portray ourselves as, and we were ready for the resurrection. But no one was ready. Why? Because that's how it went. That's how it was recorded. That's how they felt it and experienced it. Keep going. Uh, The conversion of two skeptics, James and Paul, as we just talked about. I I want you to think about James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. James was not a believer in his brother. He actually tried to like, he tried to actually go to Jesus at one point in time and say, stop, what are you doing? And then James became a leader historically in the church. He was eventually thrown from the temple and killed in that way. He was martyred. He wrote the book of James. It's not, the book of James is not written by Peter, James, and John. It's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And what James, James from my, blo- my brother, there's no way, there's no way he's all of this to, oh my gosh, he's this. What changed Paul, who was once Saul, Saul, who was once a leader, a leader in the, in this, the Jewish community, to persecute Christians, to stone Christians, to go, no, no, Jesus, everything, and I'll die for him, to ultimately being beheaded in Rome. I mean, what took these people who are so counter, it would be like this, and just in light of the political season, um, imagine you have a friend who's just, you know, they're super, super for the left or super for the right, right? And we're, I'm not going to get into that, but they're, like, I'm, they're all for one or the other. And imagine overnight, you talk to them the next day, and they're like, oh, I know I was on the left, but now I'm on the right. Or I know I was on the right, but now I'm on the left. You're like, okay, what happened to you? Like, what made you go from one extreme to the opposite? Like, I watched a million YouTube videos, and I read some books, and like, ugh, right? Something dramatically, here's the thing, something dramatically would have to, take, to, have to happen to change overnight your opinion on something. My point is, it wasn't this slow, gradual boldness. It went from crazy fear to crazy boldness overnight from, for Saul and for James. Something dramatically had to have happened for them to go from one end of extreme to persecuting to another end, to being martyred for this. Something had to happen. Uh, keep going. The moral character of the eyewitnesses in Jesus. So let me kind of point this out. Um, we have some of the greatest writings. I mean, the Bible itself, people who are not Christians have to acknowledge we have some of the greatest writings on love, on justice, on mercy. We have the, some of the greatest moral writings. And if these guys are making this lie and it's not true, we have to throw all of this out. We have to say, no, no, just don't even read this book. Don't even consider or say, man, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a really great book on morality or ethics. No. Because if these guys are just self-deceived and liars and spreading this thing, we have to just cast off all of this. Look at their testimony. Look at the eyewitnesses of these guys. Number eight, the reliable eyewitness documents recording the events. You know, we have some 30,000, 30,000 manuscripts. Whether that's a complete book of the Bible or a little parchment piece, quoting a verse, we have some 30,000 manuscripts with over 99.9% similarity within all manuscripts. Uh, there's a book called Old Testament, New Testament Survey by Norman Geisler. If you want to read about the Bible and the manuscripts, you can read about that and go, oh my gosh, 30,000 manuscripts, and they all say the same thing. There's nothing like this in history. I mean, the Bible is the go-to for just how you recorded things and, and just kept record over and over and meticulously wrote things down to make sure they were copied exactly as they were once written. I mean, they all agree. Number nine, it's illogical for the disciples to sacrifice their lives for a story they made up. And this is just one of many things. But think about people die for lies all the time. Lies they hope is true. But they made it up. If if they made it up, and let's say eleven of them say, Hey, let's just create this plan that Jesus, you know, we'll say he did this, he died, he rose again, let's just make this up. I'm not gonna see all eleven of them, or ten out of the eleven of them, except for John, be martyred for their faith. You're not gonna say that they knowingly made up a lie and then they died and watched their kids die and watch their wives die, and they died happily, and they died singing, they died rejoicing. You're not going to do that if you knowingly made this up. People might die for something they hope is true, but what they, not what they know is not true. See, there's, there's something so unique about the, there's something about the resurrection we should consider, and, so just, and here's the point. The, re- the resurrection challenges every worldview. 
This is not just easy for like, oh, it's just really easy for the Christians. They're just mindless people, and they check their brain at the door. The resurrection challenges our worldview. It challenges every worldview. I, I love how one person wrote it. They said, uh, the church did not create the resurrection stories. The resurrection stories created the church. And then there's something about that. The resurrection stories, the fact that this man Jesus was dead, but now he's alive, radically changed human history as we know it. Within about the second century, a couple hundred million people are following Jesus. Unbelievable. The world's largest faith, you could say today. People believing in Jesus, who he is, what he's said and done. We, ha- we do have to consider this. Believer, non-believer, non-believer, please consider these things. If God did create, something had to come from something, right? If God created everything, we go, does he not have power also over life and death? And so it's something we should consider, something we should walk through, and it's going to challenge your worldview, it's going to challenge my worldview. But not, not just that, number two is this. The resurrection changes our heart. When you hear the resurrection story, when you look at the resurrection story, it is going to change your heart. And the key of this story to me is in verse 7. But I want to read in verse 3 really quick. Would you look down at verse 3? The resurrection changes our heart. Look at verse 3. It says, And when they said among themselves, they arrive at the tomb, the Marys do, they say, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. I want you to understand again, as the women are coming to the cross, and they're going, man, we want to anoint Jesus' body, we want to pay our respect to Jesus. There's this giant stone, there's Roman guards there. Maybe in their mind they're hoping the Roman guards would help them roll away the stone so they can anoint his body. But they're going, who will roll away the stone for us? There's this barrier between me and Jesus, and how will we get to Jesus? There's a barrier between me and Jesus, and we want to get to Jesus. And understand, the resurrection changes our heart because, yes, there's literally a stone from that tomb. But you got to understand, there's been a barrier between man and God. There's been a barrier between us and Jesus. And the question of mankind is, who will roll, roll away this barrier? Who will get rid of this barrier so we can have access to our Jesus, so we can have access to our God? And they did not expect God himself to remove the barrier. The, the point I want us to see is, is that all of us have to understand there was a barrier at one point in time between us and God. There's a barrier at one point in time between us and Jesus. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says it this way. It says, But your sins have made separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Who can remove that? There was a massive barrier. There's a a barrier between us and God. And little did they know that God himself would remove that barrier. That as Paul would write in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 13, just listen to this. Paul would say, And you being dead in your trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you, you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Paul is saying, Jesus was not the only thing that was nailed to the cross that day. Our sins were nailed to the cross that day. That there was a barrier between us and God, and guess what? God removed the barrier. God paid for the barrier. God removed that, that stone. God removed that barrier that was between us and him. And when you hear the message of the cross, you say, wait, God paid the price? We were guilty, but God paid the price. When you hear the message of the resurrection, it changes our heart. That God made a covenant with mankind, that God created man. Man broke the covenant, and so man should pay, and yet God ended up paying for it, and God ended up dying. I would never expect, if you think about God creating man, and we rebelled against God, and we sinned against God, and God's like, okay, the only way I can fix this is if I become one of you and die. And so that contract can be voided so I can create a new covenant with the one who's resurrected. That's what Romans 7 talks about. That we have this covenant with God. The covenant cannot be broken until death happens, but who died? Not man, God. So now there's a new covenant. This covenant of grace that we have. Now we have a new way in which we walk and talk with God. That God paid for the sins of the world. And that should change our heart. And verse 7 is just the best. 
to me. Verse 6 and 7. Would you look at verse (laughs) 6? The angel, look at verse 6. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. By the way, here's these, an- these there's two angels according to John's gospel. Mark focuses on the one who's speaking. Uh, but you have the angel speaking. And I love the first thing. He's like, don't be afraid. It's like the first thing every angel says ever. All right, if you go to angel school, they're like, hey, make sure you always say don't be afraid because they're going to be afraid. So they're afraid. Don't be afraid. You're, you're, I know who you're seeking, but he's risen. He's not here. Look, look. And by the way, look where he, look, his body's not here. He's trying to say this is not some mystical thing. This not, they're not having some crazy experience that is just outside. It's like, look, you see, he's not here. Go, get the disciples, tell the disciples, and he says in this, and Peter. And we know that Mark's gospel, remember he said from the very beginning, Mark was discipled and influenced by Peter. I wonder if Peter's telling Mark the story and says, and the angel said, and Peter. What a word of grace this must have been for Peter. I want you to think about something. If the angel just said, hey, go tell the disciples, didn't say Peter's name, and the, the women come back and say, disciples, we saw these angels, and they said, go get you, and like, go to Galilee, and Jesus is going to meet us in Galilee. I can just picture Peter like, hey, you guys, you guys go on without me. There's no way he wants to see me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. He's like, go tell the disciples and Peter. I'm like, no, no, he, he said also you, like specifically you, Peter. See, I want you to think about this. Peter's the guy who just a few days earlier is swearing and cursing from heaven. He's literally using God's name in a, in a vain way, in a crazy vain way. Say, I do not know the man Jesus, and he's swearing, and there's, he's just going off. And imagine he just he locks eyes with Jesus, we're told in Luke's gospel. He locks eyes with Jesus, and he realized what he said. He realized what he did. He goes out, and he weeps bitterly. It's been a few days now. No one's expecting Jesus' resurrection, and the angels say, no, no, go tell the disciples and Peter. See, in Peter's mind, he's like, I've done, do, you know how, do you know how much I've done? I've cursed God to his face. Do you, know, do you know how far I've gone? Do you know what I've said? There's no way God could ever forgive me. And here's how the gospel works. Not only does Jesus reconcile Peter, but he makes him just the, the main leader in the church movement. The, the, the guy who sins the most is also the greatest leader. There is something about those who repent, that really repent the furthest and most. Those who get it, that I am wicked. Those who get that God, God saves someone like me, just like God saves someone like me, and you realize how deep and dark and sinful you are. God's like, yes, now I can make you. Like, the more people repent, the more it's like, I can, I can use you. I can, God's kingdom is so different than the way I would do things. Like if I was the angel, I'd be like, hey, go tell the disciples, where were you? Why weren't you here? He told you, like, right? Like I would probably present it as like, you know better than this. It's like, no, go tell them and Peter. Go to Galilee. He said he'd meet you there. He said he'd meet you in Galilee. Go back to Galilee. And that's what they do. And they're fishing, and then Peter sees them on the shore. I mean, it's, it's incredible what's happening. And I love how, the, how Jesus' kingdom works, because my kingdom would not have worked this way. My kingdom would be you're condemned. You're condemned by your own words, but not with Jesus. Jesus goes, I'm going to show you love. I'm going to show you grace, and that's going to lead you to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Is it not? It's the goodness of God that leads us. To, Peter experienced the goodness of God, and he goes, I repent. There's something about experiencing the goodness of God. You see, the resurrection changes our heart. Go and tell the disciples in Peter, and he became the biggest leader in the church. I'm so thankful for the gospel of Jesus that he would save someone like me. I'm so thankful for the gospel of Jesus that he would say, despite what you've done, it's not about what you've done. It's paid in full. Here's your receipt. It's the resurrection. It is paid in full. It's paid in full. You know, one author tried to write about it this way, like, if someone says, I want to buy, they show up at your house and they buy you a Lamborghini, right? And they buy you like this $500,000 million car and like, hey, here's a Lamborghini and it's free. It's on me. It's free. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Thank you so much. Hey, let me help you out with this. Here's five bucks. Like, what? Five bucks? Like, that's so offensive. Do you know? No. 
Like, that's offensive. Like, five bucks does not, do you know how much this cost me? Like, don't even, you really think five bucks would be, like, and that's what we do. God's like, I paid for the sins of the world. Like, oh, God, but let me help out a little bit. Like, I, my works are pretty good, right? He's like, ah, five bucks now, I'm good. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's paid in full. It is paid in full, and the receipt for that is the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what changes our heart, and that's what changes Peter's heart. And not only that, but ultimately we see verse 9 through 20, and we see in verse 7 and 8, what does the angel say? Number three, we're going to see that the resurrection commissions our feet. Again, verse 7, go tell, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's gone before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, <laughs> for they were afraid. The end. This is what I love about this story. It's so, it's so authentic. It's so authentic. They go tell the disciples, tell everyone, and they're like, ah, and they tell no one it says, and, and eventually they do tell. But that is so like us. Jesus is like, I paid for the sins of the world. It's free. Go tell everyone. We're like, I'm going to keep it to myself. <laughs> right? And it's like, no, share this. People need to know this. There's a guy who, who wrote about this specific statement of go tell everyone, and they said nothing. His name's Sinclair Ferguson. Let's just listen to this. It's long, but just listen. He said, should they not have returned home rejoicing in the news that they heard? Is there not something unexpected about this response? That in itself is a mark of its authenticity. If we were to invent the story, we would not end it this way. But it is more. He says, in Mark's gospel, this fear is always a man's response to the breaking in of the power of God. It is the fear the disciples experienced when Jesus stilled the storm. The fear of, of the Gerasenes when Jesus delivered legion. The fear of the disciples as they saw Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to die on the cross. This fear is the response of men and women to Jesus as he shows his power and majesty as the Son of God. It's just so, this is just classic in the Gospel of Mark. They see the power and they're amazed and they're also kind of shocked by it. And there's like this paralysis through analysis. Like, ah, oh, God, you're incredible. And there's almost this shock and they don't do anything with it. But he, notice what he says, go tell. Go tell. And you read verse 9 through 20, and it's Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's Jesus appearing to the eleven. It's, it's Jesus saying, go into all the world. I've given you the Holy Spirit. Go, go, go tell. The resurrection story commissions our feet. Guess what? The resurrection means we should tell everyone. The fact that Jesus is alive from the grave means we should not keep it to ourselves. If you really do believe Jesus died on the cross, paid for your sins, and three days later he rose again, that's not something we can keep to ourselves. He says you need to tell everyone. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. It means you ha once had no hope, but now you have hope. It, it means this, that you were once dead in your sins, but he has made you alive. It, it tells us this, that there's a hope after this life, that though you die, you shall live. It tells us that one day we will all breathe our last breath. We will all face death, but good news, Jesus made death a gardener. That though you die, you shall live. It tells us that we will one day have a new body, it tells us that one day we'll walk and talk with God, just like man did once in the garden. We'll be back to that, walking and talking with God in the city garden. I mean, it tells us all these things about our future, and it gives us a future and a hope that will not disappoint. You know, there's a woman, maybe you've read her biography or story. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata. At 18 years old, she had a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. And she started, you know, attending church, and she got saved, and she can't move from the neck down. And she says, and she's writing about the idea of the resurrection, and I want you to hear what she says. She wrote this. She says, can you imagine, can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me or someone who is cerebral pal uh, palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple scoliosis? Imagine the hope that this gives someone who is a maniac depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. 
Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. What else promises us that though you die, you shall live? What, el- what else promises that this body does not just end, but it's resurrected? That God made man out of dust the first time, and those you're cremated, God can make dust out of man the second time. That God will give us a new body, new life. What else, she says, offers us hope? You know, she writes in her biography about how she'd attend church, and she went to a kind of a very formal church where then people would get down on their knees and they'd pray. And she said every week she'd just sit in her chair, longing and hoping she could get down on her knees, but just couldn't. And she said this, and I want to read this, because as I read this this week, it just, I just stopped. She says, I suddenly realized that when I go, go, she says, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get on my feet, and I'm going to dance. There's something about the resurrection that gives all of us a hope, that though you die, you shall live. That though this body fails us, those outward man perishes, God's renewing the inward man day by day. The resurrection challenges everything. How about how I live my life, how I spend my money, who I live for, what I do, how I use my time, it changes everything. Do you believe this happened? Do you believe the same power that rose Christ from the grave lives in you? Do you believe that you have resurrected power in you? That's why we're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit, because I don't always believe that. The truth is, no, I don't. The truth is, I fall short of that many, many times. The truth is, I have this beautiful access to an infinite God and hardly access. And so that's why we need to look at that. That's why we're going to talk. The story does not end here. The story ends with go tell. Go tell. Go tell this good news. That though you die, you shall live because Jesus died and lived. That Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits meaning, just like on a tree, there's a first fruit. It's a sign of more fruit to come. Hey, Jesus rose again. It's the first fruit. There's more fruit to come. There's more signs of resurrection to come. And this is our hope. And this is what we look to. And this is why we're here. This is why we gather on a Sunday morning to say, look, Jesus is risen. The first day of the week. Look, Jesus is risen. Let's always remember. Let's always celebrate. Let's always go back to the fact that we serve a risen God who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That death did not have the last word. That cancer will not have last word, but Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen? Listen, we want to end our time in Mark and end our time in this topic of the resurrection with communion because we do want to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We want to celebrate the fact that by his stripes we are healed, and the only reason that has validity to it is because Jesus rose again. The reason why we can believe those words is because we have the receipt that payment was made in full, and the resurrection happened. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray in just a second. Guys, we're going to pass out communion. I'm just going to ask, again, this is for those who love Jesus, believe in Jesus. We remember Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, there's no pressure to take communion whatsoever. Why celebrate or remember something you don't even believe in? If you're not a believer and you hear this message, you go, but I do believe this, take communion. Celebrate Jesus. Celebrate his death and resurrection and what he's done for you. But we're going to pass it out. And I'm going to say as it's passed out, you guys, at your seat, there's going to be worship going on. Just quietly talk to Jesus for a little bit first. Quietly take communion. Thank him, praise him, saying, Jesus, this reminds me that payment has been made in full, that I am never going to be righteous enough for heaven, but you, Jesus, you are enough. And so as you get communion, just pray over it, thank him for it. And then we're going to come back up here and pray and just close out with some announcements. But we just do want to just honor and celebrate the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Guys, listen, the cross and the gospel and the resurrection story of Jesus is not the starting point. It's the only point. It's not the diving board into greater doctrines. It's the swimming pool in which we enjoy and receive everything. We might be closing with Mark, but we're not done with the story of Jesus.
is continuing today in our lives. Amen? Let me pray for you guys, and then we're going to pass out communion. Father, I, I do ask that in those areas of our life or our hearts where we are skeptical, that Jesus, that your faith, our faith in you, what you've done for us would just reignite our faith, that we would just so believe Jesus, so believe this truth, that you rose from the grave and you now live in us. God, as we take communion, as we just remember your body, your blood, your, your death, your resurrection, Jesus, we ask that we can just um, live in that light. God, for everyone in this room, just speak to them. Fill them with your spirit, Lord. We know that the story does not end here. We know that all around the world right now, believers are gathering together in your name, Jesus, to remember the fact that you are risen, that we are here on a Sunday morning because you are risen, that Friday seemed like all hope was lost, but Sunday happened that Jesus, we have a hope that will not disappoint. So we ask that you'd be here, speak to us. We just want to hear from you and commune with you now and enjoy you now, God. In just your wonderful name, amen.